0: Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to The New Chemist. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Here on The New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change as well as careers, community research and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Dr. Silas Cook. Thanks for joining me today. It is so good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Dr. Cook began his academic career at Reed College in 1995. After earning his BA in 1999, Professor Cook took a position at the Genomics Institute of Novartis Research Foundation in San Diego, California. There, he worked to unravel various signal transduction pathways related to kinase and GTPase cell signaling. In 2001, he began his graduate studies in total synthesis at Columbia University in New York. Under the auspices of Professor Samuel J. Danishevsky. upon the completion of his PhD in 2006, he took a postdoctoral. Position in the laboratory of Professor Eric Jacobson at Harvard University. In two thousand nine, Dr. Cook became his independent began rather his independent appointment in the chemistry department at Indiana University. Please welcome Doctor. Thanks, Doctor Cook, for joining me today. It's so good to have you on. So Dr. So good Cook. to be here.
1: I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So Dr. Cook, um, what have been your long-standing interests in the field of science?
1: Um, So I have pretty varied interests in the field of science. I think uh, human biology is tremendously interesting. And I think chemistry is a great way to probe human biology. Um, Non-human biology is also very interesting. Plant biology is very interesting. uh, And I think chemistry is a great way to probe and understand plant biology as well. Um, and so I think a lot of what drives our science or my thinking is how do we paint a clearer picture of how things work both within us uh, and around us.
0: Okay, good, good. Um, so in terms of uh, a clearer picture, what, what specifically are you referring to? You said you paint a clear picture of those things around us and within us or?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so, so h- how, how do things work, right? So okay. we, we have pretty vague general ideas of how certain cells work in concert in order to uh, make up an organ, but we don't really have a good idea about how they communicate, what chemical messengers are used in communication uh, in order to control a wide swath of cells that might be an organ or might be an organelle in the, in the, in the, in plants, for example.
0: Okay, so so
1: being able to understand those things, understanding how chemicals, uh, orchestrate huge numbers of cells on the order of trillions of cells, uh, at the same time, both in, in humans and plants is tremendously inter- interesting.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, so along the same line, or along the same uh, direction, um, would you say your research interests first started there around the desire to create a clearer picture of what's occurring on biology and chemistry? Or would you say it was more of a make upbringing that uh, caused you to have the research interest that you have now?
1: Um, it's always difficult to pinpoint um, where your interests get started, right? Because you're, you're always refining your interests, becoming interested in new things, new ideas, new concepts. Uh, but I grew up on a farm, right? Okay. And I think uh, as a farmer, uh, you sort of have an inherent interest in how the world works and how things develop both from a plant standpoint and from a human standpoint. Uh, and understanding how those things manifest, how they interact, how they get along—symbiosis, um, as well as you know, trying to kill one another—is uh, mm-hmm. all, all based on on chemicals. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. understanding these chemical messengers, these chemical uh, um, communication that occurs between cells, uh, is hu- hugely important.
0: Yeah, I agree. So um, along that same line, uh, what have been your most effective and impactful ideas to date? What would you say have been some of your most effective and impactful ideas within the scope of your research or within the scope of your academic career thus far?
1: That's a great question. and I don't know if I can put a finger on a single event. Um, I think probably some of our most impactful work in terms of being adopted by other chemists being used widely in industry uh, came from my students. Uh, They're not my ideas, they're my students' ideas. Uh, I think one of the most important roles that I play is not necessarily coming up with ingenious ideas, but creating an environment where students can do their best, come up with their best ideas and, and move the field forward. Um, I, I try to um, create as many environments as possible where people can speak their mind uh, without fear of, you know, condemnation or, or, you know, being belittled or anything like that, such that good ideas bubble to the surface. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a, a great idea isn't necessarily great upon first inspection. Uh, I, I like to tell people that I have a trash can full of good ideas. It doesn't mean they actually worked in real life, right? Mm-hmm. And so actually getting an idea to work in lab is hugely important. Uh, and it's driven entirely by students, postdocs, undergraduates, the whole, uh, the whole environment that we work in. Uh, without that environment, uh, we just have ideas on paper, and that doesn't mean anything.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So Dr. Cook, um, I know you've done a little bit, uh, done some work in uh, radical chemistry. So why spend time researching radical chemistry?
1: So we spent a lot of time trying to teach transition metals that are good at radical chemistry, how to do two electron chemistry. Okay. Um, And it turns out that it's really difficult to teach these metals to do two electron chemistry when really what they wanna do is single electron chemistry. And so it was around probably 2014 uh, that I realized that we were trying to teach a fish how to climb a tree uh, Mm -hmm. and and the fish realized it wasn't very good at that job. Uh, And so why not uh, go with the flow and let the fish swim? Uh, And and when we did that, we found that metals like iron and manganese are tremendous single electron uh, uh, redox wells of of reactivity. And we can employ that reactivity to forge really difficult carbon-carbon, carbon-fluorine, carbon-oxygen, carbon-nitrogen bonds uh, that we wouldn't be able to do with two-electron chemistry that is traditionally... uh, used in palladium, even nickel, uh, platinum, rhodium, ruthenium catalysis.
0: Okay. Okay. So it's interesting that you say that, you know, because when I hear about these one electron processes that we do in the lab that we, uh, uh, we use metals for, it almost seems similar to like what occurs in the electron transfer chain in which you have iron sulfur clusters and stuff like that. So definitely interesting. So. In term, in layman's terms, uh, what impact does this work within you, uh, this work with uh, radical chemistry, what impact does it have?
1: So. Or what
0: are we, the implications?
1: Right. So, so in layman's terms, um, we're interested in making bonds that people care about. Okay, right. Exactly. And so the pharmaceutical industry, the agri-sciences industry, the academic industry, the materials industry, are all trying to make things of relevance. If you're in the pharmaceuticals industry, you might be trying to make a small molecule drug, you might be able, you might be trying to make a macromolecule. Uh, But the bottom line is you're trying to make new bonds of interest, right? You're trying to create chemical matter that will Um, modulate whatever activity you might be interested in. Uh, And that's true of of agri-sciences, that's true of materials. And so if you look at Lipinski's rule of five, right, where molecules, small molecules under a molecular weight of 500, uh, C log P of greater than a certain benchmark um, and so on, you have roughly 10 to the 60th organic molecules that you can make. Mm -hmm. And so 10 to the 60th is a pretty large number. Most people aren't used to working with numbers on that scale, but to put it in perspective, right? The universe is about four times 10 to the 18th seconds old. And so that means you could make a new molecule every second since the big bang occurred and you wouldn't even be scratching the surface of potential small molecules that fit Lipinski's rule of five. Um, And so another way to phrase that is you could spend your entire life making molecules no one cares about. Mm -hmm. So why not make molecules that people care about? Uh, And so we really take our cues from Medicinal chemists, from process <laughs> chemists um, across a wide range of industries to see what they're struggling with, to see what bonds they have to take multi step to get to. Uh, and we try to simplify that. And radical chemistry uh, with the transition metals that we use tends to simplify synthetic sequences. And so, you know, what used to take 5, 10, 15 steps to make you know, we make in three, four, or five steps. Wow, that's uh, good. And, and, and that makes a big difference to practicing organic chemists, people out there in the real world that are actually trying to access a specific chemical environment, a specific chemical space. Um, okay. And so we take that very seriously. Uh, and so we're constantly combing through the medicinal chemistry, the process chemistry literature,
0: mm-hmm.
1: looking for areas that are underdeveloped Areas that process chemists or medicinal chemists are struggling with, um, and we and we try to improve uh, both step counts, yields, um, and obviously uh, synthetic uh, Utility. effort to get there. Okay.
0: So um, I just have I have a question along those same lines. Um, would you say that your echo chemistry? Uh, is more effective in the realm of hydrogen abstraction or carbon carbon bond formation or which bonds do you say primarily are the ones that it really has the most effect on or it really has been beneficial for
1: so so certainly ch functionalization has been important to our group over the last five or so years okay. right and okay. and, and yeah. i yeah. i do think being able to take uh common heteroatoms oxygen nitrogen sulfur and using those heteroatoms to abstract hydrogen atoms nearby to then reveal a carbon-based radical that can be functionalized uh, with transition metal chemistry to forge new bonds um, has been hugely important to our group um, and to a lot of other groups as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so David Naguib, Jenny Roizen at Duke University and others have, have used this uh, hydrogen atom abstraction technique uh, to functionalize sp3 hybridized CH bonds. Um, you know, prior to our work and others' work in this field, um, generally you would use a two electron, three atom uh, oxidative addition type mechanism to functionalize a CH bond. And that worked quite well for sp2 hybridized. CH bonds, but it didn't work so well for SP3 hybridized carbon atoms. Um, and so this hydrogen atom abstraction and functionalization uh, really um, took off when, once you used H atom abstraction as the tool to functionalize those SP3 hybridized systems.
0: Okay, yeah, that's good um so uh going in a different direction how do you maintain view of the bigger picture in your career and in your life in general
1: yeah i wish i knew the answer to that question um (laughs) i really don't (laughs) Um, so so as i mentioned previously uh i i like students directing their own projects right and so i i I really try to act more as a consultant on their work as opposed to an advisor that has a top down, iron fist approach to their project. Uh, And and, and so a lot of times projects develop in unusual ways that I didn't anticipate at the outset and students really make the big picture decisions on where to take that chemistry. Um, And I'm just along for the ride, I just sit back and. And get excited about the work. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so, for me, um, I don't know that I have so much a big picture, steer everything in a certain direction approach okay. uh, as I do uh, sit back and, and let the, the smart people in the room, namely my students, take over and dictate okay. decisions and directions for a project.
0: Okay, that's, that's definitely one approach. You it seems,
1: it seems as
0: if uh, you kind of let things let things flow naturally. Then,
1: yeah, I mean they, they zig and they zag, right? Um, so, yeah, that's so true. sometimes projects, uh, we have that seem very very exciting, uh, are moving in the right direction. We're we're over the moon about the potential. Uh, that end up in a you know burning car crash at the bottom of a hill. Um, oh. And that happened, right? Yeah. Um, and, and there's not much you can do about it. Uh, the science mm-hmm. is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's other times where we think things, a relatively sleepy result, not very interesting, ends up, you know, driving a whole new wing of the, of the group. Um, and, and those are very exciting. And so the most important thing is just to keep an open mind. Yeah, right? yeah. Keep an open mind, let the data soak in. Uh, and go where the data tells you to go.
0: I agree. Yeah. So I have a question. What do you say has been a big player in your research exploits? Would you say the fundamental science concepts or would you say the advanced ideas that uh, take place in within the literature? Or what has been like an uh, overarching thing? Because uh, from my understanding, uh, from my ex- discussions with other people, it's talk about how fundamental science plays a large role in what they do on a daily basis?
1: Sure. I think fundamental science uh, drives everything at the end of the day. Um, But day to day, you might have a plan uh, in order to achieve some outcome, but you have to be able to Throw that plan in the trash and move with what the fundamental science tells you to move on. Um, you know, we're interested in new information, certainly, right? I mean, we all want to refine and develop a better understanding of the world around us. Uh, and we do that through shrewd experimentation. That said, um, you can spend a lot of time developing a fundamental understanding of something no one cares about.
0: That's true. Uh,
1: And so don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) What you you wanna do is is spend some time trying to develop a fundamental understanding of a process, a reaction, a biological phenomena uh, that people care about, right? Um, and, you know, you, you brought it up earlier in terms of single electron chemistry, but, you know, the Krebs cycle
0: is
1: hugely important, right? Uh-huh. Hugely it is. Important.
0: Yeah, from citrate to oxaloacetate. And, and, yeah. and, and,
1: and there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful chemistry, beautiful biology that was mm-hmm. developed along the way to understand the Krebs cycle. And mm-hmm. that is a completely meritorious you know, work on the TCA cycle, understand how that works because it is so fundamental uh, to the world um, that it, it, it warranted the extra time spent developing uh, carbon labeling studies to follow the carbon footprint and the Krebs cycle to work out the stoichiometry. Uh, all of that was fundamental science, but it was on a process of huge importance and and an so it, yeah. exactly so so if you if, if, if you have the right problem you can pull out all the stops and and study the the smallest of details in that process and all of it benefits mankind right yeah, but, good. but if you work on something nobody cares about you can Are still you? pull out all the stops <laughs> you can still <laughs> spend a lifetime uh, working out the details, but at the end of the day, um, if no one's going to use your uh, technetium catalyst to do mm-hmm. what you spent a lifetime working out to do, it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter.
0: That's true. It yes, that has so, so societal relevance. Um, so, uh, my question to you is um, how do you maintain, given that you allow your students to uh, kind of direct? certain projects. How do you maintain vision and teamwork in your environment? How do you make sure that everyone's working together as a collaborative spirit within your group? How do you maintain that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's an ever-changing question, certainly okay. in the time of COVID. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. And so I, I, I wish I knew the magic formula that would breed cohesion in the group. Um, but to be honest, I, I think I've failed my group uh, during the time of, of COVID. Um, you know, we, we used to have a lot of uh, group activities in terms of problem solving, idea generation, um, subgroup meetings, all of these things where we could get together in a room with a chalkboard uh, and, and develop ideas and, and, and develop hypotheses And I was never really able to recapitulate that in a virtual environment. Um, And I I would say that probably morale in the group is at an all time low. Um, We've done online Zoom type activities. Um, We've tried problem solving online. We've tried uh, idea generation online and it just does not work the same as everyone being in the same room with a chalkboard or, or a couple sheets of paper and a pencil. Um, and and so it's it's been difficult. Um,
0: yeah. And I would say, uh, you know, it's good that you're being honest, Dr. Cook, but I would say this, you know, at, at least uh, one, one thing I can understand is, you know, challenges do allow us to grow, eh? They do allow us to provide a platform or input for growth. Yeah, so... It's definitely, um, I appreciate your honesty, you know, because some people like to paint a picture that everything is peachy, dandy, rosy, and fine. But if it's not, it's not. Yeah, because COVID has been challenging for everyone, at least from everyone I've encountered, I should say. I can't speak for everyone, but people I've encountered. Yeah, COVID has been a challenge, especially within the academic context.
1: I I, I think that's right. I, I think the challenge is actually being understated, quite frankly. Uh, you, know, you have these big industries, like, for example, accounting, banking, uh, finance, uh, computer science, for example, Silicon Valley. Um, all of these industries have been pretty recalcitrant when it comes to offering online or at home uh, sort of Zoom uh, working environments. And those are the, the areas, those are the, the careers really that could benefit quite frankly, quite a bit from being online, from being virtual, right? I mean, you can do an Excel spreadsheet virtually. <laughs> um, you know, As you're editing it, other people can be looking at it. Everybody knows the syntax of Excel uh, and so it's actually quite amenable to, to at home work or, or virtual work. Uh, chemistry is not
0: yeah, that's right? true. That's
1: our, our true. very, very different, right? We're more, we're more like a, a 3M or a, or a Boeing or, you know, some, some of these companies that actually have to make things. Um, and you can't do that at home, right? You can't take, uh, five piece ton of titanium and hammer it into a plane in your house right that has to be done in a foundry it has to be done in in a proper location and it requires the coordination of a large number of people um you know we're fortunate in academia and that our groups are relatively small but at the same time it requires a high level of collaboration of discussion of you know face-to-face interaction in addition to the long hours at the hood the long hours doing experiments um but if you have an experiment that you're going to set up for example that takes three hours to set up uh you probably want to run that idea by one or two other people before you mm-hmm. spend three hours setting it up yeah that's true right and and, and so losing that uh you know, immediate feedback loop, being able to bounce ideas off your lab mates, bounce ideas off of me, for example, uh, you know, just wandering into my office and asking a simple question about a simple reaction, uh, all that being gone has hurt research. It's hurt progress. Well,
0: so what's the plan then, Dr. Cook? I take it you haven't been able, for, you have not, I take it you have not, uh, uh, not considered a plan. What is the plan of action? <laughs> I think a man of your expertise has, has probably some plan of action or oh, has already enacted a plan of action
1: already. Uh, right. What's the plan? So, so, before I give you my plan, I, I, I want to give you a piece of data that I find pretty interesting. Um, so, I taught two courses this spring semester, spring of 2021. One was completely virtual, completely online, and one was entirely in person. Um, I recently got my teaching feedback. So these questionnaires that we send out to students about the difficulty of the class, what they learned in the course, um, whether they had sufficient access to the professor, whether the learning objectives were, were clear and met during the course of the course. Um, and it was interesting to in the same time period compare this completely online class with a completely in-person class. In the completely in-person class, I got my standard reviews, which are, this is a very difficult class. Uh, The teacher was completely dedicated and made the information clear and and understandable, uh, even though it was complex. uh, And I really enjoyed the course. I would highly recommend it to other people, uh, et cetera. On my online class, it was the exact opposite. This was oh, the worst God. class I've ever had. The teacher didn't make learning objectives clear. Uh, the teacher wasn't clear about uh, the information being disseminated, et cetera. And so it's it's really interesting to see that, A, I need more training on how to uh, develop a more successful online course. Um, okay. which, doesn't surprise me but just the dichotomy (laughs) just the dichotomy between online versus in person you know the same sort of information the same uh delivery uh just does not translate over zoom yeah that's
0: true And I think that speaks. I think that sentiment is true in a lot of different areas. And it's true for a lot of different professors as well at other universities too. I've heard similar sentiments from my friends who are taking classes on Zoom, as well as my siblings who I have uh, who are in school. They talk about how challenging it is to um, sit under Zoom instruction for hours and hours in high school. So I I can even imagine when the concepts become more convoluted and more difficult,
1: it's even more challenging. Yeah, That's right. So. Um, and so so I, I've also heard the opposite though. Uh, and so I was, I was talking to a faculty member in the Kelly School of Business this morning at a meeting I was at. Uh, and he said that actually his online courses uh, get reviewed better than his in-person courses. Uh, and his hypothesis, uh, which was presented to him by a colleague of his in the Kelly school of business was that he is much more intimidating and seems like a bigger asshole in person okay. uh, than he does online. And okay. so, <laughs> and, and, and so he, his online reviews were actually better um, okay. because he, he, um, he comes across as, a, as an easier to understand and get along with human being uh over in
0: okay. person okay well that's that's a different perspective completely very sure. different yeah so um in terms of as we wrap up why did you choose chemistry as a field to major in was that because of your upbringing on the farm or was it because you had a mentor a high school teacher what would cause chemistry to be the particular for you
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. And I wish I had a short answer where I could say Mr. McReynolds in in (laughs) high school or whatever.
0: Oh, Uh, McDonald or something like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but, but my my answer is a little more convoluted uh, in that I I, I was always interested uh, in science growing up, certainly. Um, In high school, I probably had the world's worst chemistry class available Whoa. in high school. Uh, so my high school chemistry class was taught by uh, an assistant coach of wrestling um, at my school and wrestling was a really big deal at my high school. We, we would send people to the Olympics, for example, straight out of high school. Uh, from, from my wrestling team. So wrestling was far more important than chemistry, so much so that we only had four textbooks for the entire class of 30 high school students that took this chemistry course. So the um, wrestling coach thought it made the most sense to bolt those four textbooks to the benches in the chemistry lab. And we would spend our chemistry class reading with six or seven people around the same book, chapter by chapter, every class. Wow. It was awful. Um, And so certainly high school chemistry did not turn me on to chemistry. What did turn me on to chemistry is uh, I was able to double major in chemistry and biology in in college. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I was fortunate enough to take a position at Novartis Um, in San Diego after college where I was able to do in the lab both fundamental biology and um, organic synthesis. And what I learned during my undergraduate and my time at Novartis was that the questions you can ask in biology are very, very interesting but the actual experiments you need to do in the lab to answer those questions are very, very boring. Um, and so running PCRs, growing up E. coli, uh, mammalian cell transfection, whatever it may be, is not very interesting. Uh, and moreover, if you're going to be isolating some DNA that you grew up in some bacteria, uh, you take an in vitrogen kit that says use buffer A for this procedure and buffer B for that. And you don't even know what's in those buffers. Uh, So it was very black box and not very interesting. Whereas in chemistry, you can test your hypotheses very, very quickly, I learned. And so if you have an idea, if you think that you can make a bond or break a bond, you can go in the lab, mix some chemicals together, and then take an NMR, take a GC, take a mass spec, and literally within a couple of hours, be able to test pretty profound hypotheses very, very quickly. Moreover, if you need to do a particularly difficult experiment, you might need to blow some glassware, right? And so you can learn how to blow glass. You can learn how to make instrumentation. Uh, you can learn how to make custom Uh, reactor setups to to run a given reaction, if if, if you think stirring or or light permeance might be an issue. Um, And all that is, in my opinion, great fun. Um, And so I learned pretty early on that uh, the day-to-day life in chemistry is a lot of fun, and you can test hypotheses very, very quickly, Uh, whereas the day-to-day in biology is pretty boring. Um, And every six or 10 or 12 months, you might get an answer to a question you asked six or 10 or 12 months ago, which is a little too slow for my eight ADHD brain.
0: Okay, sure, sure, sure. Um, so uh, my final question to you, Dr. Cook, this has been uh, definitely an interesting interview to say the least. <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate your honesty, really do, really do it. It's very timely. Um, so, what has been some of the most beneficial advice you have received? You obviously you 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 you're, you're doing a good bit of work, doing research. You're professor, full professor at IU, which is, has a really good chemistry department. And I'm not just saying that because I'm here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I think that to be true. So, what has been some of the beneficial advice or the most beneficial advice you have received?
1: Um, I. I've received such great guidance from the mentors I've had in my life, quite honestly. Uh, At the undergraduate level, um, Pete Schultz at at Novartis uh, was just a tremendous mentor uh, and had the most sage uh, one-liners that you can possibly think of. I I really enjoyed that. My PhD advisor, uh, truly, truly amazing intellect. And again, outstanding one-liners. Um, you know, for, for, for example, one, one, one of the uh, uh, great pieces of advice I got from my PhD advisor was uh, to just make the bond. Just put the two pieces together. Glue them together if you have to. Um, and so I, I, I wasn't quite clear on what molecular glue I would need to use in order to make the carbon-carbon bond I, I was faced with, um, but, but definitely he had some good one-liners, um, and, and my postdoc advisor as well. I mean, you know, I, I, I've really been fortunate to be blessed with great guidance all along the way, and even once I started my academic career, Not only did my PhD advisor and my postdoc advisor continue to give me great advice. Um, they, they also, you know, taught me how to seek out the advice I needed to be successful in my own career. Right. There's no, there's no one person in your life who is going to be your mentor in every aspect of your life, Mm -hmm. right? You're going to need an advisor for committee assignments. You're going to need advisor for grant writing. You're going to need advisor for new research directions. You're going to need an advisor for your personal life. All of these things are different people.
0: So, yeah, I appreciate that. And just as we conclude, you know, you made the, I wish we had met, the access, I wish i had asked this question earlier because you made the statement seeking out people that would give you the right advice or the advice that you need. How do you go through that process? How, how have you done that? Is it through just through experience or is it through like you uh, inquire or was it, it that's a guiding principle? Yeah. Behind you?
1: So, so I wish I could give you a, a, a succinct answer, but in, in, my, in my experience, in my life, one of my greatest strengths and one of my greatest weaknesses is that I don't get embarrassed And so I don't care if I feel like a fool or look like a fool in front of anyone. And so that is is powerful. I can walk into anybody's office, no matter how high or low the ranking they are in the world, um, and ask a dumb question. Uh, I feel perfectly comfortable doing that. Um, And most people don't, I've learned. Um, And so the drawback is that I don't actually recognize in other people that they might be reluctant to seek advice or reluctant to look like a fool in front of me or in front of someone else in the room. Um, And and that's been a challenge for me to try to navigate, uh, to try to draw people out of their own shells to, you know, seek the advice that that they need, right? And so it's not often obvious what advice is is going to tip the scales in your favor. And so you need to take a lot of shots on goal. Sometimes you're gonna ask for feedback from someone who really doesn't give you the feedback you need, Mm -hmm. Um, but you listen patiently, uh, you assess that feedback and you decide, is this someone I'm going to come to again in the future or not?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, and so, so you know, in that way, uh, you know, I've probably sought out a hundred mentors, uh, and I probably only have three, right? Yeah, so, that's fair. So, so you know, sometimes you have to look like a fool in order to get the information that you need to make the best decision that you need to make, uh, whether yeah. it be in your personal life, professional life, grant writing, uh, student recruiting. I don't care what the topic is right? Some people are going to have good advice, and some people are going to not have such good advice.
0: Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is The New Chemist, where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I.